This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In early 1889, William Clayton traveled to Plummerville, Arkansas. He entered a tiny boarding house, but the cloying, coppery scent betrayed it was a crime scene. There, he looked at his twin brother's face for one of the last times. Oh, John, why did you insist on coming to this godforsaken town? Sir, your family of the deceased? That's right. John was my twin. In that case, this is for you. What's this? A bill for the room? For the carpet. I'm afraid the blood soaks straight through. It will have to be replaced. You can't be serious. My brother's just been murdered. I think $31 is very reasonable. This is absurd. I'm not leaving my brother here another minute. I need a few volunteers to help move the body. We've done our part already. I can't believe it. Is everyone in this town an accessory in my brother's death? This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on John Middleton Clayton, the American politician and Republican congressional candidate who was assassinated in 1889 while investigating one of the most fraudulent elections in U.S. history. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. On the night of January 29, 1889, William H. H. Clayton was staying in a hotel in Little Rock. He was in town on business and had gone to bed early with the intent of getting a fresh start the next day. What the devil? What's wrong with you, boy? It's the middle of the night. Urgent telegraph, Mr. Clayton. From Plummerville. Must be from John. No telling what trouble he's gotten into down there. I can't find those blasted spectacles. Read it for me, will you? William H.H. Clayton. Stop. John shot in Plummerville. Stop. Come at once, if able- What was that? Give it here. Oh my god. They've killed him. By the time William Clayton arrived in Plummerville on January 30th, Americans across the country were unfolding their newspapers to discover that a U.S. congressional candidate had been assassinated. 
Although far from a household name, William's brother John had gained public notoriety due to his particularly tempestuous campaign for Arkansas's second seat in the House of Representatives. He had lost to the incumbent Democrat Clifton Breckinridge, but when reports of flagrant election fraud in Conway County reached John's ears, he had decided to investigate. John Clayton had been in Plummerville, a city in Conway County, looking into the election when a shotgun blast came through the window of his boarding room, killing him instantly. William was still processing the news of John's death when he stepped off the train into Plummerville. He was directed to the edge of town where a crowd of onlookers was still gathered around a small one-story boarding house. He was disturbed to note the oddly jovial mood of the crowd which grew more hostile as he made his way towards the house. Excuse me. Please let me through. Please! Just where do you think you're going? This is a crime scene. I'm well aware. I'm here to collect my brother's body. Another Clayton, huh? I thought you lot would have learned your lesson by now. Excuse me? What's your name, sir? I have half a mind to report you to the sheriff. Sheriff Shelby's out of town at the moment. So who's in charge here? That would be me. Deputy Oliver T. Bentley, at your service. I'll be running the investigation until the sheriff gets back. Well, that's just... Wait. Did you say your name was Bentley? William must have been shocked to find his brother's crime scene being managed by Oliver Bentley, the prime suspect in the ballot box robbery that had determined the course of the November election. To make matters worse, when Oliver's older brother George attempted to testify against him, Oliver Bentley shot George dead, then claimed the shooting had been an accident. Bentley shouldn't have been able to walk around freely, let alone be the lead detective in an assassination that he was likely responsible for. Yet Bentley's involvement was only the first indication that something was amiss with the investigation into John's death. William was greeted at the boarding house door by its owner, a widow named Mrs. McRaven. She directed him to the back room, which was dimly lit due to the blanket that had been draped over the shattered window. By all accounts, it was a grisly scene. The body had been moved to the side of the room, out of the large pool of blood on the center of the carpet. A folded blanket had been placed beneath the remnants of John Clayton's head. He had been nearly decapitated by the shotgun blast. With no help from the locals, William hurried to remove John's body from Plummerville as quickly as possible, bringing it to Little Rock. Meanwhile, the investigation into John's murder continued under the leadership of the man who should have been the prime suspect. Oliver Bentley organized a coroner's jury of his friends to search for and review the evidence. All were wealthy Democrats, many with histories of election fraud as rich as Bentley's. One member of the jury was Bob Pate, the owner of a dingy saloon where the white Conway County Democrats were known to gather. Pate had organized the poker game during which the Republican election judge, Charles Wall, had been nearly killed after he claimed to have recognized Oliver Bentley's voice among the ballot box thieves. Pate had spent the bulk of the 1888 election intimidating black voters away from the polls. Two years earlier, in 1886, he had been involved in another brazen act of ballot stuffing. Bob Pate and a friend had staged a mock fight in the middle of the polling place. 
bystanders hurried to get out of the way of the scuffling men, who somehow managed to knock over the ballot box and scatter the votes across the floor. When the fight ended and the scattered votes were gathered again, a hundred new ballots had mysteriously made their way into the pile. Oliver Bentley chose this man and others like him to make up his coroner's jury. It should come as little surprise that such a group found almost nothing of value at the crime scene. The only clues they reported were some gunpowder on the windowsill through which Clayton had been shot and a set of footprints frozen in the mud outside the boarding house. The tracks appeared to have been left by two men wearing rubber boots, one that looked old and worn, the other brand new. With this extremely limited amount of evidence, the coroner's jury determined that John Clayton had been killed by unknown persons. Conway County Democrats were eager to leave it at that, but the rest of the country was not so ready to move on. The American public was captivated by the flagrant murder of a congressional candidate, and millions wanted answers. While the public couldn't assist in the investigation, they could ensure that John Clayton became a celebrity in his death. 5,000 mourners attended his funeral in Pine Bluffs, so many that his family chartered a train to transport them. Special attention was paid to the fates of John's six children, who were now orphans in the wake of their father's assassination. Ultimately, John's brothers William and Powell would each adopt three of the children. The publicity was a source of embarrassment for Arkansas Democrats. Overnight, the political violence that had plagued their state for decades was thrust into the national spotlight. Democrats and Republicans across the country took every opportunity to condemn the heinous crime. Newspaper headlines once again recounted the events of the tempestuous, fraud-riddled November election. The Kansas House of Representatives insisted that Congress step in to restore order in Arkansas and urged them to declare martial law in the state if necessary. On February 2nd, the U.S. House of Representatives began making plans for a congressional investigation into the election and murder. John Clayton's family was not satisfied with the speed at which things were progressing. As soon as their brother had been laid to rest in Pine Bluffs, William and Powell started talking about John's killer. Have you seen this, William? Unknown persons. Do you think they even tried? From what I saw in Plummerville, I wouldn't be surprised if the killers themselves were on this jury. Our only hope is that the elections committee can find some real answers. By the time Congress gets around to acting, any evidence will be long gone. We've got to take matters into our own hands. Operator? Put me through to the Pinkerton main office. Powell and William hired Pinkerton detective Albert Wood to travel to Conway County and investigate John's death. At $8 a day plus expenses, he was an expensive investment, though they were convinced he would be their best chance at getting justice for their brother. Wood was already familiar with Conway County, having worked briefly with John to investigate the November election fraud. It had been he who interviewed George Bentley when he considered turning state's witness against his brother. Now back in town, Detective Wood's attentions returned to Oliver Bentley. Unfortunately, Oliver had an ironclad alibi. On the night of January 29th, he had attended a dance at the Morrillton Opera House, along with many of the deputies who were suspected of having been involved in the ballot box robbery. 
Several Moralton residents noted that this was rather unusual behavior for Bentley and his crew, who are not known to be regulars at the public dances. Wood suspected that Bentley had gone out of his way to be seen in public at the time of the shooting and must have had foreknowledge of the event. But it appeared that he could not have pulled the trigger himself, leaving Detective Wood without a prime suspect. But the Pinkerton detective wasn't the only one snooping around Conway County. The Arkansas State Legislature offered a reward of $5,000 for Clayton's killer. It was the largest reward that had ever been offered for a criminal in Arkansas. Accounting for inflation, this would be over $100,000 today. Journalists and would-be detectives converged on Plummerville, all eager to make their fortune by cracking the case. That would prove more difficult than anyone had anticipated. In the coming months, investigators would unspool a web of theories that ran the gamut from conspiracy to a famous international serial killer. We'll dive into the major theories after the break. Now, back to the story. By the spring of 1889, Arkansas Democrats found themselves facing a major publicity problem. The assassination of John Clayton still dominated newspaper headlines. Reporters and private detectives were swarming around Conway County, hoping to crack the case and claim the reward. The Congressional Committee on Elections had begun interviewing Plummerville residents in earnest, hoping to understand the extent of voter fraud in the November election. With the investigation ongoing, the public's interest in John Clayton's murder had hardly wavered. Arkansas Democrats knew that they had been firmly painted as villains, and they were desperate to change the narrative. Arkansas Senator James K. Jones contributed an article for the North American Review in which he attempted to defend his party by arguing that despite the contentious election, Clayton's assassination had not been politically motivated. Was Clayton's murder a political crime? No. Those who thoroughly understand the people of Arkansas, their nature and characteristics, will feel an abiding confidence, an absolute conviction that this was not the work of a politically-minded person, but the act of some poor wretch moved by considerations wholly personal to himself. Unfortunately for Arkansas Democrats, the public didn't find this unidentified wretch theory particularly compelling. Governor James Eagle and Congressman Breckinridge who had won the seat John Clayton was running for in the controversial election, knew that they needed to produce a plausible suspect in order for their dodgy theories to seem compelling. They leaned on the Democratic Sheriff of Conway County, Marcus D. Shelby, to supply one. In the summer of 1889, Sheriff Shelby traveled to Little Rock to present his findings to Eagle and Breckinridge. Thank you for seeing me, Congressman. Governor. I believe I finally have an idea of the real culprit behind this vile assassination. Well, let's hear it. I received a very interesting letter from a resident of Indiana by the name of Jared Sater. He believes, no, he is certain that the killer was none other than Thomas Hooper Jr. of California. Hooper? Wasn't he the Lewisburg Ku Klux Klan leader who was killed by Powell Clayton's militia a few years ago? That was this man's father. Sater met Hooper and came to understand that he still harbors a grudge against Powell. He blames him for his father's death. You're suggesting he killed John Clayton to get revenge against his older brother? Or perhaps he thought it was the older Clayton he was killing. 
they do look similar. Interesting theory. Do you have any evidence to support it? Not just yet. But I'm confident. It makes sense to me. Good work, Shelby. I want all your resources on this Hooper thing from here on out. And let the papers know. We've got a prime suspect. Sheriff Shelby spent the remainder of the year focused almost entirely on the Hooper theory, though he never actually bothered to travel to California to interview Thomas Hooper Jr. The Democrat-leaning newspapers were equally eager to embrace the theory. When it finally came out that Hooper had been bedridden in California throughout January of 1889, the press maintained that a portion of the story was still likely true. Even if Hooper wasn't behind the crime, they were still convinced that the assassination had to be a case of mistaken identity. The killer must have mistaken John for his much more famous brother Powell, who had far more enemies. The alternative would be to admit that Clayton was killed for investigating the Plummerville election fraud, something that Arkansas Democrats were not ready to concede. This mistaken identity idea became so pervasive that it found its way into the case's most bizarre theory, one that focused on an internationally renowned killer. At the same time that Arkansas newspapers were obsessing over the identity of John Clayton's assassin, another murder craze had erupted across the Atlantic. From August through November of 1888, five women were brutally slain in the Whitechapel district of London. The unidentified serial killer came to be known as Jack the Ripper. In spring of 1889, Sheriff Shelby received two letters confessing to John Clayton's assassination. Both letters were signed by none other than Jack the Ripper. According to the letters, Jack had traveled from London to Arkansas in January of 1889, intending to kill Powell Clayton, but ended up killing John Clayton by mistake. His motive? Revenge for crimes committed by Powell Clayton's militia during Reconstruction. While it may seem unlikely that Jack the Ripper would have any opinions on the actions of an Arkansas governor, Shelby and the Democrat-run newspapers made sure to spend plenty of time on the Ripper theory. In fairness to them, the letters from Jack ended up containing what might be a significant clue towards the real murderer. One of the letters had been postmarked from Southwest City, Missouri. This just happened to be the hometown of a close relative of Bob Pate. If Pate asked his relative to send the letters, it might suggest that he was somehow involved in Clayton's murder before he was selected for the coroner's jury. Well, that would be hard to say for certain. Even if Bob Pate was behind the Ripper letters, he might have created them to draw attention away from his fellow Conway County Democrats rather than himself personally. While Sheriff Shelby was exploring the Hooper and Jack the Ripper theories, Pinkerton Detective Albert Wood was still searching for the real killer. Wood hired a local black Republican named Joe W. Smith to help conduct his interviews. Smith had recently run for sheriff against Shelby and had proven to be a far more competent investigator than Shelby. On Smith's advice, Detective Wood interviewed three African-American men who had been first at the scene following Clayton's murder. These men had been all but ignored by Shelby's investigation. One of the men had little information to give, having immediately fainted upon entering the room and seeing John Clayton's blood covering the walls and floor. The others had looked out through the shattered window and seen two white men peering in at them. 
They believed that one of those men had been Bob Pate. If Wood felt any elation at finally having a new suspect, it was short-lived. Like Oliver Bentley, Bob Pate had a solid alibi that had been corroborated by multiple eyewitnesses. Plummerville resident Cyrus McCullough and Gus Christenberry both claimed to have been drinking with Pate at a saloon at the time of the shooting. Detective Wood must have still harbored suspicions despite the alibi because he made a point of visiting Bob Pate in his saloon. I'll take a whiskey, Mr. Pate, and a moment of your time if you've got it. You're that Pinkerton detective asking around about that Clayton killing. I didn't have nothing to do with that. I was here at the saloon. You could ask anyone. Of course. I wanted to ask about Oliver Bentley. He didn't have nothing to do with that either. How can you be so sure? Asked him about it. I talked to him at the depot earlier that evening, and he didn't know nothing. You saw Oliver Bentley at Plummerville Depot on January 29th? I thought he was supposed to be in Moralton. Oh, yeah, he, he was in Moralton. That's right. But you just said you spoke with him in Plummerville. I don't know nothing about that. At first, Wood didn't know what to make of Bob Pate's inconsistent testimony. Bentley had supposedly spent all of January 29th in Moralton, and countless eyewitnesses could put him at the Moralton Opera House that evening. It was possible that Bob Pate had simply misspoken. On the other hand, Wood decided that it was just as possible for Bentley to have ridden from Moralton to Plummerville, met with Pate at the depot, then raced back to the Opera House in time for the dance. Well, possible, but quite difficult. And that still left the question of why Bentley would make such a trip. On the days following his interview with Bob Pate, Conway County Democrats became increasingly hostile toward Detective Albert Wood. They had only begrudgingly allowed the detective's presence up until that point, most likely due to a combination of his status as a Pinkerton and the fact that the town was still crawling with journalists. But after his interview with Bob Pate, Wood had the sense that he had poked a sleeping dragon. Detective Wood! What's the matter, Joe? You look exhausted. I just ran halfway across town to warn you. you you've got to make yourself scarce. They're coming. Oh, hold on a minute. Slow down. Who's coming? A whole posse of white Dems. I spotted a few of Shelby's deputies among them. Looks like they're hoping for a fight. They wouldn't dare try anything now. Not with the whole country watching Plummerville, would they? I don't know, Detective, but the questions you've been asking have made these men mighty desperate, and desperate men might do anything. You're right. I better pack. No time. I'll send your things after you. Just get to the train station. Right. Thank you, Joe. I'll be in touch with instructions. If they're this angry, it must mean we're on to something. Fearing that he would meet the same fate as John Clayton, Detective Wood caught the first train out of Plummerville. He continued the investigation from a hotel room in Little Rock, relying heavily on Joe Smith to be his eyes and ears in Conway County. Not long after being driven out of Plummerville, the Pinkerton detective was visited by Charles Wall, the election judge who had narrowly avoided being murdered. Wall brought along Gus Christenberry, one of the men who had provided Bob Pate's alibi. Christenberry's memory on the subject had changed significantly. So you're telling me Bob Pate wasn't actually at his saloon on the night of November 29th? Yes, detective. At least I didn't see him there. And that's not all. Go ahead, Gus. Tell him about the gun you lent to Pate. Bob Pate? Nah, his brother, Charles. 
Came by around supper asking if he could borrow my pistol. And did he say what he wanted it for? I didn't ask. I did ask where Bob was. Charles said he was at the Plummerville Depot, meeting with Oliver Bentley. That confirms it. Oliver Bentley was in Plummerville on November 29th. You think his alibi was a lie? Not likely. Too many people saw him at the dance for him not to have been there. But this is all very interesting. Good work, gentlemen. Over the next few days, Detective Wood began piecing together a theory to explain the mysterious meeting between Oliver Bentley and Bob Pate. He theorized that the Democrats had orchestrated a plan to commit the murder while simultaneously ensuring their own alibis. Bentley could have written to Plummerville to let Bob Pate know that the plan was a go and then headed back to the dance while the Pate brothers put it into action. Detective Wood was excited by the theory, but still had little in the way of real evidence to support it. He instructed Joe Smith to look into the possibility that Bentley had made such a journey on the 29th. Sure enough, several Plummerville residents had seen Oliver Bentley riding between the two towns on the night of January 29th. He was easily distinguished, they said, by his horse, which had a distinctive yellow clay-colored coat. Even more suspicious, Bentley had shot the expensive horse only two weeks after the assassination. He claimed that the horse had suddenly taken ill and collapsed. But Wood wondered if Bentley's reasons for killing the steed could have been more sinister. Bentley may have realized how recognizable the horse was and thought that killing it would decrease the chances of it being used against him as evidence later. Then, on March 30th, Detective Wood received a letter that promised to break the case wide open. Dear Sir, this is to inform you that I have found a man who knows, in his words, the doggone son of a bitch that killed John M. Clayton. He also knows the names of the men who went to Plummerville on the night of November 6th and stole the ballot box. Some of these men have fled from Conway County and I am trying to find out where they are. I will bring my witness and several others down to Little Rock for you to meet them as soon as possible. Look for a letter from me tomorrow. I remain yours as ever, J.P. Smith. The Pinkerton detective was excited by the letter and began making preparations to receive Joe Smith's witnesses. It seemed like they were making headway at last. We'll learn about the ramifications of Joe Smith's fateful letter after this. Now back to the story. In March 1889, the investigation into the shooting of John M. Clayton seemed to be on the verge of a breakthrough. While Pinkerton detective Albert Wood was hiding in a Little Rock hotel room, Joe Smith, the local black Republican who wanted justice for Clayton, continued the investigation on the ground in Plummerville. Smith had proven his value time and again and was starting to show investigative skills that rivaled the Pinkerton detectives. Now, Smith stood ready to deliver a key witness who was willing to testify that they knew the assassin. It seemed that the Clayton family might finally have justice. But justice was always hard to come by in Conway County. On March 30th, Joe Smith sealed his letter to Detective Wood and deposited it at the Plummerville Post Office. He spent the next few hours following up on a lead. At sunset, he set off down the long, dusty road that led north of Plummerville to his home, where he knew his wife and five children would be waiting. Hope the missus is cooking up something good. This detective work sure does build up a man's appetite. 
What was that? Glancing behind him, Joe Smith saw three figures on horseback racing toward him from the outskirts of Plummerville, all brandishing weapons. Joe must have known that it was hopeless before he even started running. It was only a matter of minutes before the trio overtook him. The fastest was 18-year-old David Richmond, who shot Joe Smith from behind as he rode up on him. The young man climbed down from his horse and fired a second shot into Smith's skull to make sure he was dead. Albert Wood would never meet Joe Smith's witness, and Conway County had claimed one more innocent life. Arkansas Democrats once again dove into the task of denying that the crime was politically motivated, instead leaning into the racism that was rampant in the post-Reconstruction era. In a speech before the U.S. House of Representatives, Congressman Breckinridge claimed that a drunken Joe Smith had hurled obscenities at David Richmond while attacking him with a rock. Newspapers corroborated that the 18-year-old had acted in self-defense in what was little more than a squabble. African Americans in Plummerville were naturally incensed. Constable Richard Gray, a physician and leader of the black community, hunted down Richmond, arrested him, and dragged him before Sheriff Shelby. Here he is, the man who murdered Joseph Smith in cold blood. What are you going to do with him? Young man, can you tell me why you shot Mr. Smith? On account of his slackjaw, of course. Exactly. He killed Smith for speaking the truth about Oliver Bentley and his posse. Ahem. <clears throat> I believe he meant that Smith was being quarrelsome and verbally abusive. Isn't that right, son? Whatever you say, Sheriff. I'm sorry, Mr. Gray, but I really don't think this amounts to much. Doesn't amount to much? I saw Oliver Bentley in the street last night crowing about how certain death awaited anyone who investigated Clayton's assassination. That's got nothing to do with this. Joe Smith got killed because he was drunk and unruly. Now... I'm letting Richmond here go. Gray was not willing to let the matter rest, and he traveled to Little Rock to beg Governor Eagle to intercede. The governor refused. In the end, a Conway County grand jury ruled that the killing had been a justifiable homicide, a clear injustice for any observing the case with objective eyes. Of course, the injustice was even more pronounced when they decided to indict Constable Gray for using abusive insults in the course of arresting David Richmond. Meanwhile, Albert Wood's investigation was effectively scuttled. He had been run out of Plummerville, and his man on the ground had been murdered in cold blood. The Pinkerton detective made his report to Powell and William Clayton, who were naturally disappointed. Over three months of work, at $8 a day plus expenses, had brought them a theory but no conclusive evidence. Their last hope was that the government would be more successful in finding justice than they had been. In April of 1889, a federal court in Little Rock convened to examine evidence of election fraud in Conway County. The prosecution's key witness was Warren Taylor, a young drugstore clerk who had agreed to testify in return for a lenient sentence. Taylor claimed that he had been a member of the posse responsible for the ballot box theft and identified 18 others as his companions. Twelve men were indicted on charges of election fraud. Among them were George and Oliver Bentley, but Bob and Charles Pate were not named. The trials began in October 1889, 
almost exactly one year after the ballot box robbery had taken place. Once again, Conway County Democrats circled their wagons. 59 witnesses took the stand for the defense, claiming anything they could that would discount the evidence against Bentley and the other Democrats. With half the county willing to lie under oath, the conclusion was all but inevitable. On November 22, 1889, the jury released its verdict of not guilty. That night, the white Democrats of Conway County celebrated as if they had won the Civil War. There was, however, still one investigation left. In April of 1890, after nearly all public interest in Clayton's case had moved on, the U.S. House of Representatives sent a subcommittee to Arkansas. For two weeks, the congressman interviewed Conway County residents in an attempt to ascertain how they had really voted. They were essentially replicating the investigation John Clayton had been conducting when he was assassinated. When they finally submitted their report in August, Congress concluded by a vote of 105 to 62 that John Clayton had been the true winner of the 1888 election. Breckinridge was forced to give up his seat, which was declared vacant for the few months that remained of his term. Despite this small bit of justice, John Middleton Clayton's murder remained unsolved. At least as far as the official record was concerned, Powell and William Clayton maintained that either Oliver Bentley or Bob Pate were directly responsible, but were never able to bring charges against either man. Then, nearly a full century later, a young woman in Arkansas stumbled upon a part of the story that had eluded journalists, Pinkerton detectives, and federal investigators. The young woman interviewed an elderly Conway County resident named John Mason, who had been born in Plummerville in 1899. The tape-recorded interview was intended merely for the purposes of family history, but what unfolded was one of the most comprehensive accounts of the assassination of John M. Clayton, told from the point of view of the culprits. John Mason had himself heard the story from his grandfather, Cyrus McCullough, who was one of the men who provided Bob Pate's alibi for the Clayton shooting. During the rambling taped interview, Mason recounted how his grandfather had been one of a group of 19 men who met around the potbelly stove of Malone's general store in Moralton in November of 1888 to plan John Clayton's death. Oliver's here. Gather round, men. We got business to attend to. Dire business. Some of you might have heard that John Clayton is back in Plummerville. That's right. Seems the carpetbagger wasn't satisfied with the paddling we gave him last November. He proposes to find proof of, what did he call it? Election irregularities? <laughs> now, I don't know anything about election irregularities, only that the good people of Conway County have always done what needed doing. We haven't forgotten what it was like when his big brother Powell ran things in Arkansas. That's right. Colored militias marching around day and night terrorizing folks. Remember how they broke into your house, Bob? Sure do. They slapped my sister and cussed my mama. Well, men, you can expect more of that if we allow Clayton's little investigation to continue. We've got your back, Oliver. Tell us what you want us to do. I got a bag of marbles here. Everyone takes one. Black marble does the deed. According to John Mason's grandfather, the honor of killing John Clayton went to none other than Bob Pate. Supposedly, 
Bob announced then and there his intention to bring his brother Charles along with him. So, while either brother could have pulled the trigger, Mason's story seems to confirm that it was one of them. Well, that sounds pretty definitive. It certainly makes it seem like this case is solved. Unfortunately, John Mason's story comes from a second-hand source, and it was told nearly a century after the crime was committed. While it seems to confirm the most likely explanation of the murder, the fact that so much time has passed means that crucial evidence that could definitively prove the Pate's guilt has been lost to history. Mm, Or destroyed by Conway County Democrats. In any case, John Clayton's assassination was most likely the work of his political opponents in Conway County. And the fact that his murder remained unsolved proves that their cover-up worked. Nobody was held accountable for the assassination or the election fraud that preceded it. Not only were they not held accountable, they were rewarded. Bob Pate, who had committed fraud in multiple elections before Clayton's assassination, became a Conway County election judge. Oliver Bentley went on to become a justice of the peace, the mayor of Moralton, and then a county judge. Congressman Breckinridge was made to surrender his seat when it was determined that Clayton had been the real winner of the 1888 election. But by that point, he had already served most of his term. He immediately began campaigning again and managed to regain the seat only a few months later. By late 1890, Democrats had once again secured their hold on Conway County and the state of Arkansas. They would soon go on to instate Jim Crow laws, which disenfranchised African Americans and institutionalized segregation and racism to horrifying degrees and would remain in place well into the 1960s. The assassination of John Middleton Clayton remains one of the most fascinating unsolved political murders in American history. It illustrates how in the decades after Reconstruction, white Democrats effectively used fraud, intimidation, and violence as tools against their political rivals, particularly African Americans. John Clayton was slain for attempting to expose their behavior. In the end, Neither the federal government nor Clayton's family of wealthy, famous politicians with the Pinkerton Detective Agency on their payroll were able to bring the perpetrators to justice. The assassination of John Clayton is one awful example of corruption writ large, and this cautionary tale should not be forgotten. For more information on John M. Clayton, amongst the many sources we used, we found Who Killed John Clayton? Political Violence and the Emergence of the New South, 1861 to 1893, by Kenneth C. Barnes. Extremely helpful to our research. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoy the show. The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is a part of the ParCast Network. 
It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Harris Markson, Heston Mosher, Kate Nielsen, Brett Schneider, and Munib Rehman. <laughs> <laughs>